0: all right ladies and gentlemen thank you for coming i i actually forgot it was this week <laughs> fortunately my friend wendell i was at lunch with him and he said i'll see you thursday i said oh no it's not it's next week <laughs> no it was this week it turns out and uh, hence it wasn't in the paper yet oh good so i guess it was good you all remembered somehow uh, even though i did not so thank you for coming um if you remember last time, oh, I, I talked about this whole notion of the humane arts. And, and my, my general thinking is that it's made up of a series of behaviors that are unique, rather than any sort of institution or government form or historical condition other than that. Because what makes for these fluorescences that we've discussed of the arts, literature, you know, the things that we associate with civilization and, and what makes life worth living, Um, is largely due to the way many individuals live their lives. And what I mentioned that we're going to be talking about, you know, card of conversation, um, letter writing, um, cafes and salons, these sorts of subjects, they all require one common element, and that is time. Time. Leisure is the key word here. What they require is leisure. It turns out that leisure, while it sounds simple enough, is a really subtle and complicated idea. And So I thought a good place to start would be trying to figure out what it is we mean by leisure, whether or not we have it, who's had it, what does it look like, how would we know when we had it, and how does it apply to all of this stuff. <laughs> there you go, it's a long list. Um, if you got your little handouts, I will talk about this uh, briefly. Uh, this is going to be more of an interactive series as well. I'm going to make you do things, not just me. So this will be fun, I hope. Um, all right, so, leisure and time. Now, anybody who's read the documents from 50, 100, 1,000 years ago, you always get this impression of, where do they get the time? You know, people say, oh, I don't have enough time to write letters. I don't have time to go for long ones. I don't have time to do all these things that people used to do, in fact, take for granted. Now, factually, actually, if you measure time itself, we have a lot more time than people used to. This is for two primary reasons. One, we live longer. Now, this depends... On when you want to score from, but if you take about the mid 1700s and later, if you were if you survived childhood in the mid 1700s, you could expect to live if you were a woman about 55. The problem with being a woman uh, earlier is that they have children, and that turns out to be unbelievably dangerous. And so they had they died earlier than men did. Oh, hello, cell phone. Oh, cell phone off, please. That's a good reminder. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, so your average life expectancy in the 1700s would be 55 to 60. If you look at the actual historical charts, they'll list it as much younger, but that's they just take everybody. But if you made it to about 20 or 21 is usually the cutoff date, you've survived the childhood diseases, you don't have any serious health problems, then you're probably good for another 35 to 40 years, uh, roughly. Now, in the intervening centuries, we have added to that about 15 or 20 years. It might even be a little more than that, but conservatively, we've added 15 to 20 years. So we quite literally have a lot more time, years and years more time. The second aspect of this that's often overlooked is we have these things, electric light, an amazing innovation in the history of mankind. Even wealthy people, rarely stayed up very late because it was dark. And the only way you could stay up late is if you burned candles or whale oil. Whale oil, fabulously expensive. Candles, fabulously expensive. Um, and, and not terribly bright unless you had a lot of them, which of course just increased the expense. Um, and so most activities took place in the daytime or the early evening hours. Once it got dark, most people went to bed. The Impressionists never painted at night. I I can't find a single reference to any of the Impressionist painters ever painting at night. Um, Which makes sense because they needed light. And candlelight just is not going to give you the necessary uh, um, output you need to be able to see clearly lamps they could have used, but again, they were so expensive, I don't think any of them could really probably have afforded them. Maybe Renoir could have afforded them, but, but, but no one else. I don't know. But So we actually stay awake. Now, whether this is a good idea or not, we stay awake much later, which is to say we sleep less than they probably did. Which means in our given day, we probably have an hour, maybe two hours more time than they had. You know, we were just... Sleep, we just sleep less. That's why we're also sleep-deprived, right? Because we have these wonderful things that allow us to do things at night. So we live longer, lots longer, and we stay awake longer, which means we're flush with time. We're time-rich. We're, we're at like time-billionaires, right? But we don't feel that. Psychologically, right? We know we're all pressed for time. We're short on... People say this all the time. We're short on time. We don't have enough time. If I only had enough time. If there were more time, right? That's a psychological impression. Ah, where does that psychological impression come from? A lot of this has to do, of course, with social pressures. One aspect of it, which is the top of this little uh, chart here, is this is average hours per week in the United States. So the average human uh, adult in the United States watches 30 hours of TV a week, which to me seems like quite an achievement. Uh, uh, cell phone is about three hours. Internet's about eight hours. And we ride in the car about 15 hours. Now the fascinating thing about this to me is that it means we spend, on average, you know, your mileage may vary, about uh, 56 hours a week doing things that 100 years ago and previous, no one even had the opportunity to do. Right. If, if you look at novels in the 18th century, they're all hugely long. The reason they're hugely long is cause they didn't have anything to do. You, you wanted long novels because... what? Right? I, you know, you're know, you not going to say, Oh, I'm tired of this. I'll watch TV. You can't do that. It's impossible. You, you couldn't even, like, click on the radio until about 100 years ago, right? I mean, just don't. You just, nope. You're going to sit in the quiet, dark. <laughs> right? it was just, it was truly, honestly, this is true. This is what they did. This is, by the way, this is one of the magic things about books is because it didn't take that much light to read. It could take some light, but not a lot. You didn't, need a lot more light to have a party or a painter do these other things. So with a little light, one lamp or, or a few candles, you could read or you could write letters. It's one of the reasons you think both these things became very popular because they were pastimes. And notice, if you have 56 extra hours a week, hey, that, that gives you time. So one of the reasons we feel pressed for time, short of time, is we're inundated with things that we feel we ought to do, should do, maybe even that we want to do, that really didn't, that didn't even occur to people to do before. They weren't even available to do. People in the 15th century didn't sit around going, man, if we only had a TV, this would be so much better. <laughs> we could watch the Black Plague on CNN. (laughs) Right? That would be, that would be great. You know? No, you know, they just, they they didn't have this opportunity. But more importantly, I think, is the fact that we have no concept, as far as I can tell, or very little of a concept of leisure. In the United States, we might be even worse about this than other places uh, in Europe, uh, in the Western world. It's certainly different in Asia, which we'll talk about. Um, But leisure comes from the word flatten that just means license. Leisure time is time that you give yourself license to do whatever it is you want to do. That is the definition of leisure. It's the same root as licentious. (coughs) Uh, Not coincidentally enough. Um, and, And this seems to be our take on this. It is licentious. To have leisure, we're very suspicious of it. We tend to view leisure time, or what we call vacation, as as doing nothing, right? Root of vacuum. Uh, you know, no. It's but this is not what leisure originally meant. My, my idea of leisure, the perfect imbo- embodiment of it, I can think of is Emily du Chatelet. I'm sorry <laughs> for the um, pronunciation. They're a French noblewoman. who is is most noted as a mathematician, but also the translator of Newton's works into French. In fact, today, uh, in the 17th century, today her translation is still the standard French translation and her commentaries, big commentaries on Newton's works. Now, Newton's works were not like the easiest thing to translate. First, they were in Latin, and, and second, Newton's mind worked differently than most people. So this was a major undertaking. She rushed to complete it, because she was pregnant. She was about 36, I think, and she was pregnant. At the time, that was very old to have children. And it's very dangerous. And she was afraid that she was going to die in childbirth, so she wanted to make sure she had the translation finished before she gave birth. She finished the translation, gave birth, and promptly died in childbirth, right? This was the history of Emily de But. That is leisure. Why? Why did she do this? She's young. She's attractive. She's rich. She's a noble woman. She doesn't have to do anything. So why would she spend all this time, effort, energy translating Newton? It's really a truly formidable intellectual task. Because she wanted to. That's why. That's what leisure means. And again, we almost don't have this concept. Newton was a man of leisure. We don't think about this. What he was supposed to be doing, hilariously enough, was giving sermons and providing religious education. He did not do this (laughs) to the point where he got in a lot of trouble for not doing this. He never actually really did his job. Occasionally he did some pro-forma stuff. But basically, he didn't do any work because he wanted to pursue mathematical physics. This is what he was interested in. And uh, all kinds of crazy chemical experiments he was trying to do lead into gold. He also translated many of the uh, Old Testament books into English for himself from the Hebrew because he thought the translation was suspicious. So so he spent a lot of time doing all these sorts of tasks, uh, none of which were his job, none of which he was paid for doing. He generally drove himself to utter exhaustion doing them. Was He working? No. Leisure. He was a man of leisure. He considered Himself a man of leisure. He was considered by His friends, contemporaries, and peers as a man of leisure. That's what leisure was. That's what leisure is. But, see, we don't have that notion. If you're working, if you're doing something, we think that's work. The distinction for them, and, and that I think we've lost much of, is that work is thing you must do. Not from you, but from the outside world. What is it that the outside world requires you to do? That, given your brothers, you might rather not. That is work. Leisure is whatever it is you do, simply and solely because you wish to do it. Back to the definition of humanism. Because you are the most important thing in the world, in the universe, and you are the fruit of the entire development of the history of mankind, what you choose to do is hugely, valuably important, and should not be repressed or smothered to the degree you can avoid this. So the concept of leisure is when, as the great human you are, you have the opportunity to express from inside of you, whatever it is you wish to do. Now, if what you wish to do is watch TV 30 hours a week, that there's humanism has nothing to say against that except for it suspects that you're kind of lazy.
1: <laughs>
0: right? That this is a sort of vacuous entertainment that is probably not really developing your full capacities. Now, that's fine. But it, it opens you up, and everybody, if the Greek world is the clearest in this again, they would just criticize you, and they'd say, oh yeah, he well watches well TV all the time? He's lazy. And I would have to say, yeah, but well screw you, I'll do whatever I want. That's, these are the kinds of debates that they had. This also rolls around to education, liberal education. Anybody, liberal is the same root as liberty. It's the education suitable for a free man. It's it's for a man who does not have to work. Freedom. This is the key. Education is not about getting a job. Cuz if you need a job, you're not free. That's not the point of education. This is the whole this is where we've sort of gotten it backwards. Education is supposed to be useless. The goal of education <laughs> is to be useless. You have to remember, I'm not kidding, it's true. <laughs> The only utility it's supposed to have is helping you achieve whatever it is you think you want to achieve. It's supposed to help you with your leisure. We have gone so wrong headed on this, I looked this up because it's just disturbing. That I went to the UWs uh, website for their art department, you know, so you can get your degree in the fine arts, and they say the goal of their department, first goal right there, first paragraph, first goal, goal of our course structure, all this, is to ride you with a foundation for a successful career in art. Career in art. Oh my god. Right? This is just horrible. It's like the worst idea ever. No. You know, they can't have a career in art. It's antithetical to the whole notion of career. This is where we've sort of got everything flipped the other way around. That Art departments, of all places. I mean, I don't think they believe it. I, feel, I think what they're actually doing is lying to the administration, right? I mean, that's, what I, that makes me feel better inside. Like, oh, okay, we've got to say something. What we're actually doing is weaving cool shit with crazy fibers, right? But we better say we're preparing them for careers. Right? Which is funny to even think about, right? A career in fiber arts. <laughs> that a career in fiber anyway. But this but but notice this is we have this idea and it comes very early and it has this unbelievably uh, perverse effect on us. So let's say if you if you have if you're young, you have some child, some kids, whatever when you're young, you're you're good at music or you're interested in the arts, people either either two things seem to happen. Either we say oh you're really good you should work at that go to school at that and make a career out of it pressure 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 which hell, that's no good. Or, look, at some point you gotta stop messing around with that and get serious about something. Right? Why do you have to be serious about it? It's just if somebody says, why do you do it? I do it because I want to. Right? And it does this for 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 music is its clearest, I think, because they make kids perform all the time. Why? Right? Why do we have to listen to these crappy kids who can't play their damn instruments? <laughs> no. Now they can play, excellent, but usually they can't. It's painful. Right? We've all been to these little recitals. They're horrifying. I hate it. But you're supposed to clap, say, so oh that's very good, not say, get that little bastard off stage. <laughs> because the notion is if you're learning something, there must be a payoff. The payoff is the performance. And you'll get better and better at performance until you're at Carnegie Hall. Congratulations. Wonderful. No. The payoff for music is music. This is the idea of leisure. The activity itself is the reward for the activity. Why do you write? Because you like to write. Why do you paint? Because you like to paint. Why do you play music? Because you like to play music. Why do you garden? Because you want to. Whatever it is you like to do, you do it for the sake of the action itself. So, that, they that, I mean, in theory, this, this makes sense, but look how rare this is, right? We don't want to do this. In, in, in the writing world, people are always convinced that uh, publishers and editors and agents, you know, are, are opposed to them, won't read their work of genius, won't publish it, whatever. No, this is not true. Agents only make money if they publish works. Agents are desperate to get works that they can publish and make money off of, because otherwise they're unemployed. Right? So they, 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 they just cry out for works. But works that they can make money off of. Notice this may be totally different from works that people want to write. People want to write things, that seems a bit, but that has no association at all with publishing. No, I mean, they are almost entirely different worlds. Because publishers, not crazy, they're, they're not, they want to make money. Um, and writers want to write. And these are fundamentally different processes. And, and, then, and there's this notion that, oh, well, if you write something and it's really good, then there's lots of really good things written that no one is ever going to make any money off of. Right? So, you know, you must have read a book that you really love and you thought, why the hell did this publisher ever publish this? It's insane. They must have lost a fortune. I thought that all the time. I'm like, good for them. Throwing their money away so I can enjoy this book. Yay. Got it on Amazon for a dollar, you know. And it's, so that disjuncture. But people feel frustrated because they think, oh, that's the purpose. I've painted a beautiful painting. I've made beautiful music. There should be a reward. Yes, the beautiful music, the wonderful painting, the process is the reward, fundamentally. Now this course this gets complicated. Um, but money often complicates things. Uh, and so I got a couple of examples here, because there are professional, those are historically anomalous, I won't talk about the different functions, but Recently, the last couple hundred years, there have been essentially like professional writers and professional artists and professional musicians. Still very rare and historically somewhat anomalous, but Dostoevsky provides one great example of a, of a writer who, who was at his leisure. Now, he, he was constantly in debt, of course. Anybody knows anything about Dostoevsky? He was not, let's say, a good money manager. He gambled away the money for his wife's life-saving surgery, and then she died. I always, I always say, that's going to make you feel bad. And it did. It made him feel bad. It did make him stop gambling, but he did feel bad. Um, but, so he's written, handwritten about 400 manuscript pages of the brother's Karamazov. Okay, that's a nice work. And he writes a letter to, I think it was to his brother, and he says, I've got about 400 pages done I need about two or three hundred more. It's due at the publisher in like a week and a half, and he's advanced me all this money, which of course he spent three times over. So, you know, hopefully if I can deliver that, he'll give me some more money and I won't be in such dire straits. The next day, he writes a letter to his brother and says, beautiful, and he says, I've burnt the manuscript pages. I've decided I did not like them, and I wanted to change them, and I was afraid if I did not burn them, I would not have the courage to make the necessary changes. (laughs) So he's totally in debt. Like 10 days, he's supposed to hand in the brother's Karamazov, and he takes a, a stack, like I think it's over 400 manuscript pages of a draft, and burns it and starts over because he wasn't happy with it. See, that's a man of leisure. <laughs> right? That is fundamentally someone who's just saying, no, I'm doing this because... I want to. You can make contracts. You can give me money. You can do whatever you want. I'll take it. I'll do all that. And I'll say, yes. But inside, I'm going, oh. <laughs> right? Melville, the same thing. There's letters from Melville to Hawthorne while he's writing Moby Dick, where he says, um, I know what they want. I know, he had, he had a, a, like, sort of like a bestseller. He was an instant sensation with his first book. And then his second book was pretty good, but not as successful. But, you know, he was on the lecture circuit, and all the European writers are saying, wow, Melville, you're great, and his books are selling, the publishers are saying, send us whatever you've got. And he's like, I know what they want, and I sit down to write it, and instead he wrote Moby Dick, <laughs> which was not. He knew it wasn't. He kept trying to write a bestseller. He, knew he had a bestseller, he, he, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. At the end of it, he said, I have written a wicked book, and I feel as blameless as the lamb. <laughs> right? I am just... Because it is a wicked book. If you haven't read Moby Dick recently, I really suggest it. Wow, what a, what a crazy book that is. You know, you've got everything in there. And he knew it, but he couldn't bring himself not to do it, because fundamentally, he was a man of leisure. He had to do what he wanted to do. He wasn't going to allow all the external forces. By the way, his family was trying to get him committed to an insane asylum at the time. (laughs) Because they said, well, he's just, he he writes, he does crazy stuff, but he doesn't make any money. He won't get a job. He won't do what he's supposed to do. That's right. But he still couldn't bring himself to do it. His wife stood by him. Good for Miss Melville, maybe. Uh, But yeah, so we have her to thank pretty much for Moby Dick. But this is, this is the distinction, right? So it's not always clear. It's getting paid is not the part. It's the, it's the why of it. Right? It's, it's, it's the what. What are you doing in the, and why are you doing it? And that's a, notice this is a completely introspective question. You can't, there's, no, there's almost no way from the outside, unless it's you know, pretty extreme, to be able to tell whether you're really doing what you want to do. Clearly, Emily was doing what she wanted to do. No one is standing there going, look, you, you do this, right? Make that translation. I mean, it's silly. I mean, no one, no one, particularly for a woman in that time, it was just unheard of. Um, one of her lovers, Voltaire, said her only mistake in life was not being a man, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of, uh, you know, it's like, well, there you go, right? <laughs> so... So, so this, this idea um, of doing what you want to do, see, we almost don't have it. Because people want to know, well, what are you getting out of it? If you paint something, well, are you going to show it? I think this is why we always have bad art hanging all over the place, Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> people take art classes, and then so, theoretically, I guess, the first thing you paint, you're supposed to display. <laughs> Why? Why is that? You don't know what you're doing? That's crappy. It's like, sort of like some extension of the whole world is a refrigerator, like when you were a kid, right? Here, mom, okay, we'll put it on the refrigerator. No. No, mom should say, wow. No, that's not going on the fridge. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that true? I mean, at some point, you need a little critical feedback. <laughs> That feedback needs to come from you. This is the thing with leisure. If you've done it because you enjoyed it, then the impulse to say, oh, well, I have to do something with it now, no, why? There's no reason to do that. Then the impulse is to say, is this something that I think is worth people seeing? And probably, if we're honest with ourselves, much of what we do is not worth all that much, which is okay. Picasso said, does everything I paint have to be a masterpiece? I mean, he was happy because he turned it into lots and lots of money, but at some point he just said, look, everything, well, I paint crap. He's just like, look, everything I paint is not a masterpiece. Look how much I paint, good Lord. Right? I mean, and they said, why do you paint? He says, I like the smell of the paint. <laughs> he did, that's a quote from Picasso. <laughs> I like the smell of the paint. It's the famous, he was, of course, it's the famous thing. Why, Irish poet, why do you drink so much? I like the taste of the stuff. <laughs> right? Really? What's the question here? Being drunk is nice. Why do you paint so much? Painting is fun. I enjoy painting. Picasso loved to paint. If anybody's seen pictures of his studios, or read any account of his life, or seen a list of his collection paintings, I mean, Apparently, from the moment he got up in the morning until he went to bed at night, he painted. There's no reason for him to do this. At some point, he was fabulously wealthy. He had beautiful women. He could travel all over. He's famous. What did he do? Secluded himself away and painted from morning until night. Every day, as far as we can tell. People seen the Picasso plates? Those came from the fact that during lunch, he would push the food off his plate and paint his plates. No, that's serious. That's where he got the idea for those plates. Because he's just been painting for like eight hours. And so when he stopped to eat, he started painting the plates. And he made little sculptures. Did people see the little sculptures that he did? He developed those because after when he was smoking, he would start folding up his cigarette packages. And ripping them, and he started making, he thought, wow, that's fun. I like working three-dimensionally. And this sort of got him rolling. Why? Because he's at a party smoking. What does he do? He starts making art. Or, or messing about, whatever you want to call it. Because he wanted to. See, and this is, this is difficult. The problem we run, I think several problems we run into, is that the only person who can give us the license is us. No one else is going to do this. There's no outside force that can do this for you. There's no day when the magic wand descends at us and says, "Being now you should. The whole world embraces and supports you in doing this. No, it's always retroactive. You're a layabout, worthless painter. Actually, no, you're a layabout, worthless person pretending to be a painter. And then someday when you're like 87, your paintings get put up someplace and they go, oh... That's my great-uncle. He's a brilliant painter. Right? You get promoted instantaneously from you know, worthless, layabout, drunk to, wow, great painter. You know? But it's always retroactive. No one at the time is going to say, oh, that's great, or most people aren't. Huh? No, it's the, the license has to come from inside. And we struggle with this mightily. Because notice again, back to the professionalization of things. Why the hell are there so many art schools? This is one thing I can't figure out like messing around with paint is complicated, and we need schools, vast schools, to figure out how to mess around with paint. This has never existed in history, by the way. I mean, the Impressionist movement was born out of about six rooms, roughly this size, where the teacher said, Sketch! Ha! And some of the guys said, okay, we'll sketch. And some of them said, uh, fuck you, we're not gonna sketch. And then the impressionists followed, right? I mean this it it was not a vast you know, university hierarchy, bureaucracy. How many MFA programs are there in the country? (laughs) Right? Has there been a consequent flourishing of the literary arts? I mean, if that's the way it worked, there should have been this unbelievable deluge of quality, earth shatteringly beautiful literature. Moving, psychologically. I don't know, maybe I've missed it, which is possible. <laughs> it is possible that we've just missed it. I'm suspicious, though, I have to confess. Have <laughs> okay. you, you seen it? Um, my wife tells me to, to keep my. To wait. <laughs> <laughs> But but it's, but this is
1: but this is but it
0: comes down to all kinds of fish. So 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 speaking of MFA programs, if you want to know, if you read again the history of of, of literature of writing, one of the most consistent elements discussed by what you consider to be you take your list of great writers from the last five hundred years or more, consistently they say you must learn at least two or three other languages fluently and write in them. This is the way you learn to write well. I know of no MFA program that requires that. No, no, I'm serious. Literally, I've looked looked for a while. I'm, I'm not making that up. I've seriously researched trying to find one that requires anything even close to that. And they don't. Why don't they? Even though this is like one of the key pieces of recommendation that comes down to us from hundreds of years both in practice. I mean, this is what they used to do. Too much time. See, we're pressed for time. We don't have time to learn Greek, Latin, German, and Medieval French. We're busy (laughs) with meaningful things. I want to be a writer. I don't have time to learn languages. (laughs) You see how preposterous that is? I want to be a writer. I don't have time to learn languages. But that's what it is. That's absolutely true. They they don't. We don't have time to learn languages because we're busy doing important things. Unless we want to. But let's say you're really interested in languages. Ah, then what should you do? You should become a linguist. You professionalize it. (laughs) It used to be called philology, which meant someone who really liked languages. But now it's a linguistics, it's become a science, and it's been professionalized, because just liking languages isn't good enough. Why do you do it? Because I like it. No, that's not right. What are you doing? What I like. What's your plans for your future, young man? To do what I want. <laughs> See. This, this, is, this is not right. We know this is not right. So everything from the structure of our education system, the structure of the way we present arts, it, it, is, it's sort of switched around. If anybody is, is a sort of professional practicing arts who's ever tried to provide, apply for an arts grant, that's like a career. Applying for art grants is a job. I mean, this, is, this is, it, it, it's virtually a full-time job because it's designed for you not to do art. Right? The, the Jacques Barzon, a writer that I, I really enjoy, um, he said that if you really want to have a foundation that supports artists and writers, you just find artists and writers you like and you send them checks.
1: <laughs>
0: right? Because if you make them go to conferences or fill out forms or, or go to shows or travel across the country, well, they are doing their stuff. That's not their work. That's not what they do. And so our whole system is designed to prevent people from doing what it is they're theoretically supposed to be doing. Uh, Gerard Schwartz had just left as the director of the uh, Seattle Symphony. Brilliant conductor. I don't really want to throw rocks at him, but do you ever see his schedule? He was like a conductor at four orchestras. I'm not making that up. He would fly all over the world all the time. Why? Like, being the conductor of the Seattle isn't, isn't enough? No, it's not. Because if you're really good, then you'll be doing these other things in other places. And he wants to go from a good orchestra like Seattle to a really good orchestra like New York or maybe, you know, Berlin, you know, someplace, you know, maybe, maybe Philadelphia, you know, better. So you move up and if you're gonna move up, you have to be doing, so conducting the music of the symphony was not enough. The music itself was not enough for it. I always find that slightly disturbing, because on the other hand, he was, a, he was a brilliant conductor. But with these limitations, but the limitations are social, half social. And this is a key I want to make, because this that's the sort of the easier part of this talk. The harder part is the bottom part of this survey here. Humane art. So if you look at this little handout, this is for your own edification. I was going to ask you to track what you do for a week, right? How many hours do you spend on what in 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 a week? And then ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Because in a world where we feel pressed for time, and people consistently report they don't have enough time, they have enough time. The fact that on average we spend 30 hours a week watching TV, if we spend 30 hours a week watching TV, we aren't that busy. This is flat out, it's just, you cannot be that busy if you have 30, that's like a full-time, damn near a full-time job, <laughs> and a bad job at that, come on, be a horrible job, <laughs> right? But, if you have time to spend thirty hours a week watching TV, you are by definition you are not that pressed for time unless that 's your social time with your family well I mean whatever just forget your family right i mean this is but this is the question right what is it you are actually doing with your time you don 't have to tell me just for your own sake because it, again if you I mean, I feel this. We all didn't feel this because it's what our society tells us to feel. Feel pressed for time. You don't have enough time to do the things you want to do. Well, is it true? I don't know. But one way to find out is to say, well, how am I spending my time? I remember, for me, it was a shocking revelation. Um, I, had a, I had a PlayStation 2 for a while. And I always said, well, I play a little bit. I have some fun games, and one of my friends would come over and we'd play, and that's great. And then one day I was playing a game, and a little light came up or something in the window on the TV, and it said, warning, your memory card is full. And I said, well, how could that possibly be? <laughs> so it turns out that there's this little button that you can punch, and it will pull up not just that your memory card is full, but every game you've played, and how much time you've spent playing it, and the total time you've played the PS2. And I was like, oh oh my God, (laughs) I've got to get rid of this, right? It was like, wow. It's like if you say, well, I have an occasional drink, and then you open your basement door one day and find a thousand whiskey bottles, right? You're like, Wait a second here. wait a second. So it was a little shocking. I immediately took it to the nephews. I said, here you go, kids, knock yourselves out. I'm not responsible enough to have one of those. They do fine with it. I, I apparently can't have one. Um, but but this, is, this is the notion. If we feel pressed for time and we say, oh, I would love to play the guitar or paint or learn French or uh, just sculpt or work in the garden more. I don't know what the hell ever you want to do. Again, what is it we want to do? The first question we have to ask ourselves, is that true? See, this is the problem with, back to the humanism thing again. This is a measure of you. Humanism is brutal in this way. The Greeks were just, they were so totally judgmental of everyone around them, because they believed in humanism. You're a human being. Why aren't you measuring up? Not to my standard, but to your standard. That was always the question. A lot of it was their standard, too. But a lot of it was your standard. Oh, you said you wanted to do this. Why are you still here? So Again, it's the famous section from the opening of, of the Iliad, where Achilles says, well, I'm not going to fight. And everybody just turns to him and says, look, what are you talking about? You're a great fighter. You said you were here to fight. Now fight. There's no question.
1: And
0: he says, well, I'm mad at Agamemnon. I don't like him. That's basically Achilles' saying. And everyone's like, yeah, we all know Agamemnon's a jackass. No one's arguing with you about that. But what's your problem? And so he sits in his tent. Is it famous? He's sulking in his tent. And he says, Achilles says, of himself, I'm a dead weight on the world. I, I would better be dead than let myself down so completely. It's not other people. It's not everybody else bothering. It's Achilles saying to himself, Wow, I said I was going to come and fight. I am the best fighter. And here I sit. It's better to be dead than to so let yourself down. And he knew he was letting himself down. <coughs> that's, that's like sort of the core of humanism. If you say, I want to do something, and you don't do it, then it raises a couple of possibilities. One is, you don't really want to do it. But sometimes that's hard to accept. Much easier to say, oh, if I only had the opportunity, I would. Because see, then it's not my responsibility. Ah, so on one hand, you might have to accept that, really, I don't want to do this. I thought I did. I feel like I should want to, but basically I don't really want to. Or, you might go, ah, I really do want to do it, but I I can't bring myself to pay the price. Get up early, stay up late, not watch my favorite TV show. Piss people off. Quit my job, burn the manuscript before the editor gets it. You
1: know,
0: whatever it is. Whatever that price is, I could do it, I look at my time on paper, I look at the other variables of my life, I go, no, I could do it, but I won't. And those are hard questions. Both, both sides of that. Very, very hard questions. This is where leisure again brings us right back into the core of humanism, because it's it's us measuring up finally, and most importantly, to ourselves, which takes You know, introspection, reflection, honest dialogue and debate and discussion to try and figure out, really? Do I really want to do this? I had a very uh, educational experience with this this summer because many thinkers of all kinds, again, over the centuries have recommended uh, that if you really want to learn about yourself, write your autobiography. Write it as fast as you can, as honestly as you can, from your earliest memory up to sitting at your desk writing your autobiography. Great, great. And they all say, brutal, unbelievably hard and brutal, but educational. I thought, right, I'll give that a run. I made it till I was about in second grade. (laughs) Wow! Wow, it's really hard. Oh, it is just, it. It's like drowning. It's like all I can figure it is just all, every, all this stuff just comes up. Clarity that you may not want, right? You're like, oh, that's awful clear. Too bad, you know? And so I, I, I broke off and I talked to a friend of mine, writer friend of mine about this. And he said, oh, I tried that. I made it to fifth grade. and said, screw that. This is too painful. You know? And so I thought, ah, I'm not. I had to just admit. I, I had the time. I could have done it. But I just had to fess up and say, wow. No, I'm not ready for that yet. Maybe a little later. Maybe I'm in a different place. But right now, I'm just... Uh, no. I don't, I don't want to do it. I could have. I could have probably even forced... I thought about this. I could have forced myself to do it. We all have this capacity, right? We emphasize self-discipline. Notice self-discipline is not the same as doing what you want to do. <laughs> right? Uh, this is, again, notice this is one of the problems that he had the discipline to finish it. Right? We, we can do this, but leisure suggests that you have the discipline to not have any discipline. Right? You're like, oh, I went this far and then I said, yeah, I don't want to do it anymore. Screw it. I'm not going to do it. Thanks. Mixed bag, though. I mean, it's hard to know, but, that, but it was very educational and I thought, no, really, I could force myself, but I, don't, I just don't think I want to. And I'm going to go with that feeling. Maybe I chickened out. I him, oh, no, I definitely chickened out. Uh, but I, it, it just at some point, I said, no. But then, again, I, it's a reflection on me. I have to think about what does that mean? And so, but again, this, the concept, as you can see how it sort of folds into everything. As far as I can tell, we have more time and more opportunity to do more things than anybody ever in the history of mankind. Possible limiting exceptions would be our lack of slaves. Now, historically speaking, <laughs> slaves are really great. Right? If you're not a slave. Uh, it turns out it's less good if you're a slave. Um, liberation of women has also slowed this down dramatically. That was a bad move. Um, because we used to have lots of people, lowly, second-tier, sort of semi-human people, um, doing everything for us. Uh, and so this sort we have this retroactive myth that, wow, it must have been, if you were a noble person, you didn't have anything to do back in the day. If you were a, a noble person in ancient Greeks, if you were a citizen, if you were a French noble, if you were a, in, in the Dynasty noble person, then you were good to go. Historically, this turns out not to be the case. Being a noble person is a job of sorts. You have things that you have to do. They felt these obligations very strongly. Um, Slaves take management. Imagine every day that you go home, you've been doing whatever you want all day, you come home to a house with, say, 30 domestic servants. That's just trouble. (laughs) It really is. All these great letters from Henry James to these uh, noble women in England at the turn of the century, because he had some domestic servants, because, you know, it was about 1900, 1890, right in there, um, and he's always having trouble with them. And so they were constantly writing him, and oh, going, no, here's how you handle that. This is, how, well, this is what you do. This is how you take care of that. This is this. Why? Because these women, men, noble, they, they're managing whole estates. They're, whole, they're like businesses. They're like enterprises. They took responsibility. That's why it was always the younger son, who wasn't going to inherit, who was having the great time. (laughs) Because he had a little money and essentially no responsibility. But really, if you look at it, factually, we live when you want to live if you want to have time to do things. We're unbelievably lucky in that sense. We have all these labor-saving devices that we don't use to save us labor. Labor. Like wall-to-wall carpet, right? That came about because they invented the vacuum cleaner. We used to have little carpets, area rugs. Once they invented the vacuum cleaner, and was so efficient at cleaning it, they said, well, we'll just make really huge rugs. And so now you spend all your time vacuuming. Right? But in theory, we should have the time if we want it. And that's why I wanted to give you this worksheet to see if that is, in fact, true for you. Just to see, where, how are you doing with time? Where does all your time go? We all have the same amount of time, in theory, again. Where does it go in practice? What's actually going on? Sometimes, again, it can be quite shocking to find out that um, you know, we spend some amazing amount of time doing something, that you oh wow, how much time that's eating up? And then what does this say about you? How do you feel about it? Again, that, I put that, what does this mean, question mark. Where, where does that put you on the, on the leisure scale? And how much time do you really need? This is another thing that comes up historically. Some writers, uh, Thomas Mann springs to mind, uh, some painters, Picasso springs to mind, worked very diligently. Six, seven, eight, ten, twelve hours a day, most days. (coughs) Most writers, artists, painters that we have decent records for, did not. Um, One of my favorites is the five, five immortals, eight immortals, how many immortals, seven, eight, eight drunk immortals from Tongue, China. Is there eight, seven? Eight. 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 Thank you. Yeah, there's eight. There's a lot of them. They were mostly writers, artists, calligraphers. I think there's a sculpture in there. A couple of government ministers. But they were really famous for being drunks. And they were hugely effective and drunk. And six or seven of them, by famous poet, famous calligrapher. Um, why? How? Well, because they were only working on it two or three hours a day. I mean, how long can you really practice well? Famously, when Michael Jordan was reaching the end of his career, he decided to develop a jump shot, because um, he didn't have one, because he was slowing down. And So he spent one summer practicing about two and a half hours a day jump shots. And when the season started, he had an unblockable jump shot, and he spent another two years destroying everybody because he just couldn't block it. But it took him about two hours a day, maybe three. But after two or three hours of real dedicated work, eh, are you really doing that much, or are you just killing time? We're just faking ourselves out. Oh, I'm really working now. I've been at my desk for six hours. Napped for two. (laughs) You know, I had a drink, stared out the window. You know, talked on the phone. Yeah, you know, pet my dog. But whatever it is, how much, how, and how long can we really work? Sometimes a lot. Often, yeah, I'm suspicious. How much time do we need? But mostly, it comes back to this concept of leisure, allowing ourselves the license to be licentious, essentially. Because this is what our culture tells us. A vacation is doing nothing. If you're doing something, you should be getting paid for it, or in some other way, promoting yourself. If you paint a painting, you put it up in the shop, and you say $5,000, or $500, or $150. They even do that with the kids' paintings. Have you seen that? They put them in elevated ice cream. And they put a price tag on it. And they're like little kids, like first drawing class, second grade, and they put like $50. <laughs> I mean, what a weird message to send to kids. That anything you do should have a price tag on it. Because if not, you're a sucker. Because that's what it's all about. It's all about the cash. No, it's all about what it is it's worth doing for the sake of doing. It. What do you want to do just because you want to do it? But then you, can, you have to be honest. So so this is the question of leisure. And it's going to weave itself in, as you can imagine, into everything else. Because time, taking the time, allowing yourself the time to do what is necessary. To sit down and just say, I'm interested in this subject. When When I started writing my dissertation, I was going to have a film chapter, which fortunately I never did. But I didn't know anything about film. Uh, and so my dissertation director, Diane Elam, she said, uh, look Wes, there's this journal called, I can't remember what it's called. Well, oh, I should remember, like Focus or something. It started coming out in 1971, and it's still being published today, and it's quarterly. And just read all of it, every edition, every article. And it'll get you up to speed on all the major debates, the major players, the issues, the terminology. And I'm like, Do you know, it's like 30 years of stuff. And there's, you know, there's a lot of a couple of thousand pages of material. but you know, that's what you do. When Goethe was, I think, 80 or 79, he became interested in Persian poetry. So he did the logical thing and started to teach himself Persian.
1: <laughs>
0: right? Only makes sense if you're interested in Persian poetry. What else would you do except learn Persian? Simple enough language.
1: <sighs> <laughs> it's impossible
0: language. Persian people don't speak Persian. I think they're lying. But it's, uh, it's a very, very subtle and difficult language. But he did, and he apparently taught himself fairly well. He was pretty, pretty solid in Persian by the time he died. Not that long later. Long but there's no reason to do that, except for he really, truly loved the Persian poetry that started to become available in Germany. And he thought, this is so beautiful, I had better learn this myself. I mean, why not? Right? What else did he have to do? A, a final note on this, we, we often tend to feel overwhelmed um, by our jobs, by work. Um, and I, I, sometimes people are, and sometimes I think people just lie because we're supposed to feel overwhelmed. Right? is not right. <laughs> Our work is supposed to be really hard and completely overwhelm us, and so we're supposed to say that even when really, you know. But my very good friend, when we go visit him, he's like head of technology at Time Warner. He always is calling me from work going, on board. <laughs> He cruises the internet, and he sends me all these crazy links, so I always email him back. He never sends an email, he only sends links to, to fascinating things, usually, because he's a smart guy. But I always email him back, and I said, look, get a damn job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually at work. You do some work. And he's like, ah. He can do his job for like 20 hours a week, but they pay him a lot, so he sits in his office about 50. 30 of which he's taking naps. And he goes to meetings for donuts. He's like, oh, there's a meeting with donuts. I'll go and sit in it. I don't care. I got nothing to do. Right? This is absolutely true. But, you know, I think there's a lot more of that out there. And if that's the case, if we really aren't, you know, being driven to our full potential every day at work, then, you know, why can't we admit this? And say, wow, well, you know, I'm doing okay at work. That's fine. It doesn't take it all out of me. And when I get home, I want to do something else. Many great writers, artists had jobs. Michelangelo, my God, the Medici's worked that guy to death. Virtually, almost literally, the Pope tried to kill him. Um, it wasn't Medici Pope anyway. So, but I mean, it was. But they just worked him and worked him. Mozart, by the way, famously, Mozart cranked out flawless dross faster than any composer in the history of mankind. He wrote. Listen to If you ever try to listen to all of Mozart's works, which is virtually impossible, he wrote so many, but three-quarters of it is elevator music. Uh, he could churn that stuff out. It's flawless, it's perfect, it's unbelievable. But some pieces he loved, and he would spend years working and reworking them, developing ideas, developing themes. Those are the pieces he wrote for Mozart. He knew. He even said this. He said, I'm, you know, he's, I'm cranking out crap. He was not confused. He, you know, anybody knew what good music was? It was Mozart. But there were a few slight pieces. About a, a third or so of his repertoire is unbelievable. Because those are the ones that he said, no, no, I'm not rushing this. No, I'm not going to finish this now. I don't care what the deadline is. I'll send you something else. I'm going to rework this. Some of them, like the Jupiter Symphony, famously worked on for, I think, six years. Reworked it, rewrote it, just massage it and massage it and massage it, because because that was for him. So even the the work issue, right? Working artists who get paid for what they do, even that doesn't free you up. That doesn't make it leisure. People say, "Oh, if you get paid for what you love," it's like really. If someone would pay me to be married to my wife, that would make it better. Or would that just make it weird? You're not going to vacuum more often than I'm going to want to raise. right? You see how strange that is? It's a very strange. No, getting paid for what you love does not make it better. It makes it weirder. It makes it stranger. It's another one of those pieces of cultural advice that is so psychologically wrong-headed. I I, I think it's kind of scary. Do what you love and the money will follow. What? (laughs) That is absurd. That really, I mean, think about that. Think of how completely and totally absurd that is. Lots of people do things they truly, deeply and profoundly love and they never ever have any money follow them because of that. And there's no reason to either expect it to be otherwise. In fact, we should not want it to be otherwise. Because, again, because of the perverting effect that has. Do what you love because you love it. See, we don't say that. We say, do what you love and the money will follow. If you love your job, then you'll get paid for what you love to do. What? No, if you love your job, that's the whole point of it. You just love it. What else is there to worry about? I think we should charge for kids, right? I love my kids, but I don't see the money in them. Right? Let's face it, the little 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 guys are cost sinks. I mean, they're they're definitely running up a deficit. So you know, but if you love them, shouldn't the money follow? Them? No, oh God, this just crazy. I mean, but again, it comes back. I think again. To this notion of we do not wish to allow ourselves, as a society, because what happens? I don't know, because I think we fear the licentiousness. If everybody allows what's in them to come out, and they do what they want to do, end of the world, I don't know, my calendar ends 2012, I don't know, something bad will come. Chaos. There's no evidence from this, by the way. But, but that we have this fear, I think, that, that, that people will want to do strange and unwieldy things and then everything will fall apart and the economy will collapse and it's bad.
1: That's
0: what I mean. But that's, that's, that's what's happening anyway, so what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> right? We may well enjoy it while we go down, right? Yeah. So, so honestly, I'll uh, wrap up with this is, is take a look at the time, right? Track a week and ask yourself how much... Leisure, how much time do I have first? And then how much leisure am I actually allowing myself? What am I doing that I don't actually have to do? What am I saying I don't want to do but I actually like doing? Right? Try, try, try and, try and un- unravel that because it can be, a, can be tricky and subtle. It's a psychological thing. To try and get our heads to the place where we say, doing what I want to do Is okay because I want to do it and being the humanist fruit of the history that you are that's all that's necessary you have the power to determine what you should do and what you should want to do there you have it leisure thank you Questions? Questions, anybody? No questions? Oh, there you go, get
1: There's sort of three things that are, like, in my mind,